Hi, everyone. Are these exciting days to be a part of Crossview Church? I can think back to when we first started and where we are today. My, how many prayers has God answered? How many good things has take, have taken place? Shirley and I are so thrilled to be a part of this family. And thank you for the privilege of sharing with you today. As I share, Pastor Chris and LaDon are just finishing their holidays. We've been praying for them and so look forward to their ministry to us in the Sundays just ahead. Today, I wanna to talk with you about building your house. Uh, let me ask you this question as we begin. What do you think is the greatest humanitarian crisis? Would you vote for human trafficking, racism, unrelenting violence and conflicts, refugees, poverty? I think at the root cause of many of our greatest humanitarian crises today is corruption. And if I were to ask you, what is the best way to stop corruption? What would you say? Would you answer and say, well, go hire more enforcement officers, uh, more judges, enact stiffer penalties and more deterrence, or build more prisons, or create stronger and clearer policies? If you think corruption can be stopped by the principle of punishment, you vote for retributive justice. Retribution assumes severe consequences can form a deterrent that's sufficient to hold back corruption. Yet punishment rarely seems to be enough to stop the rampant spread of corruption. Generally, fear based on external deterrence has limited success. What if, instead of external controls, we found internal restraints? What if instead of fear, we developed character-based loving motivations? Integrity would be part of that kind of a solution. At Commissioning a Lifestyle of Integrity, we are not just another anti-corruption program, but we are a pro-integrity movement, and we offer a way to overcome corruption by helping people develop personal integrity. We guide people toward good character and we offer them preventative initiatives. We seek to address corruption way before it happens. So I believe that integrity can build, be built in one person, and if it can be built in one person, then that person can influence a family. If it can be built in the family, it will influence a community. If it can be built in a community, it will influence a city. If it can be built in a city, it can influence an entire region. And if it can be built in a region, it can influence a country. I wish I could take you with me and you could walk along as we interview the mayor of one of the seven villages of Mokandu in Sierra Leone. The markets there, he would tell you, are now offering fair prices and there's much less theft. He would tell you that the crime rate is down in town and there's less litter. The pollution seems to have been all but eliminated. And he would smile as he tells you about how domestic violence has reduced and how his goats have been saved for the last four months from any rustlers who have come to steal. He used to lose so many. Well, corruption affects not just Sierra Leone or Africa, but I think it affects Canada as well. We need integrity. Let me tell you a famous nursery rhyme, and it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men 
could not put Humpty Dumpty together again. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied that nursery rhyme, but it's very insightful. There's this gentleman named Mr. Dumpty, and he's facing a significant decision. So as he sits on a wall, he considers his options, and Mr. Dumpty ends up having a great fall. And what's interesting is where Mr. Dumpty called out for help. He didn't go to the family, friends, or community. Sadly, he didn't even go to a small group or church, but he went to politicians. How do I know he went to the government? Because the rhyme says, the king got involved, and he commissioned civil servants to respond. We know this because all the king's horses and all the king's men got involved. And so the government legislated funding necessary and commissioned a study plus enacted laws to help Mr. Dumpty. The great tragedy of the nursery rhyme is not Mr. Dumpty's calamity, that is tragic, but the tragedy of the nursery rhyme is that the king's horses and the king's men could not put Mr. Dumpty together again. So the most powerful people of the land, representing the most powerful institutions of the land, could not fix the shattered reality of Mr. Dumpty's life and Mr. Dumpty's world. Now, I think that this nursery rhyme shows us that it will take more than policies and funding or laws to fix our world. The answer to restoring Mr. or Mrs. Dumpty is that we look towards the subject we have today. In Psalm 11, verse 3, we read, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, the directive here is that the righteous should do something. To do nothing is not an answer. We must not stand back or put our hands in our pockets and just observe and criticize. We must do something. So come with me to Matthew 7. If you can find that in your media device or you have a paper Bible there. And we're going to read from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this sermon is certainly the most viewed sermon ever preached. And Jesus concludes his sermon in verse 24 by saying something very significant. Let's look at his conclusion. Verse 24, Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, and notice this, but does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Verse 28, And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teaching. Now imagine if every time Pastor Chris concluded a sermon here at Crossview, he said, if you hear my words and you put them into practice, you're wise. But if you hear my words and you don't do anything about what I've just said, you're a fool. Now, if we are only entertained or informed by a message, what value does that sermon have? We must apply what we hear to our life and put it into practice. And so Jesus concludes his sermon. He talks about two builders. It's a parable. Two men who will build their lives. So both men who listened had a dream. 
They dreamt of building a house. I wonder, is there anyone who's watching you've had a part in building a house or a doghouse or a birdhouse uh, and you've helped with some renovation or building project? If you have, you probably know that building does not just happen easily. Building a house takes blueprints and planning. Building a house takes more money and more time than anticipated. Building a house requires energy and tools. Building a house requires skills and carefulness. Building a house takes probably a million micro decisions. Building a house is work, hard work, long work, rewarding work. Building a house is certainly messy. And in the Bible, the word house is used in a number of ways. The first way, is the one of this parable, to build a life. Jesus refers to two people who wanted to build a good life. Now, nobody wants to have a life that is inconsequential and goes the wrong way and ends up in failure. Who wants to arrive at their grave and having, having failed to live up to their potential? We all hope to build a good life to leave a legacy, to have an influence. So building a meaningful life doesn't just happen. It's not a function of luck or being born into the right family. A life that matters is the product of patience, purpose, devotion, investment, learning, prayer, planning, time. And if you're listening today, you are doing so because deep in your heart, you want to build a life with quality. And a good life doesn't just happen. You need to be intentional in the life you build. Secondly, in Scripture, a house can refer to not just your personal life, but to building a family or a marriage. Uh, the house of David. Now, each time I performed a wedding, I know that the couple that stands there uh, want to have a marriage that lasts. That beautiful bride who's just walked down the aisle, that nervous groom waiting at the front. They both dream of having a home that will stand the test of time. They dream of building a good, a healthy, a prosperous, a safe home. But we all know that good marriages, strong families, deep relationships aren't accidental. They don't just happen. They're a product of a lifetime of commitment and consistent effort. And if you're single and listening to this, you need to think in terms of your relationships and what you consider to be your home and culture of home. And the same principles apply. A good household, which can be the cornerstone of society, takes all the kind of effort that building a house does. So a good family, a good marriage, requires much. The third way that the scripture refers to a house is the house of God. And so a church is called a household. At Crossview, we understand that for our church to become a great church, it's going to take work and prayer and unity and discipleship and witness and service and forgiveness and patience and kindness. And oh, did I say forgiveness? And then just a lot of love with grace. Similarly, if you're a business person, you know that a great business doesn't just fall out of heaven. It just takes a lot of work. If you're a doctor or a lawyer, 
your practice just didn't come about without a lot of effort. If you're a farmer, a successful farm doesn't just happen. To build a strong church, a strong business, requires that you have a plan, that you pray, that you trust, you invest, and that you are diligent in what you build. The fourth way the word house can be used is to refer to a nation. And the Bible refers to the house of Israel. And as Christians, we have a dual citizenship. We have a citizenship in heaven that is eternal. But while on earth, we have a earthly citizenship. I'm so proud to be a Canadian. And my conduct and conversation, even when I'm in Africa or China, <laughs> betrays the fact that I am a Canadian. In Jeremiah 29, we read that believers who lived in the land were to make a difference in the country in which they lived. They were to make a strong contribution to the culture. They were to build the culture's foundations so that that culture would not be destroyed. They were to participate in community and to shape the culture. We should never allow ourselves to be guilty of silence and things that truly matter. We need to engage with humility, character, and love. And Canada needs people of integrity, people like you and me, people who would have godly character to rise up and become salt and light. So all of us are builders, and all of us want to build something that matters. I want to build a good life. I want to build a good marriage. I want to help build this church, and I want to help build the country that I'm a part of. The second thing that we notice of these two men is not only did they have a dream to build, but the two men decided uh, what would guide them in their building. Now, both men attended the same sermon and listened to the same wonderful preacher. They might have even sat in the same section of the crowd on the mountain. Both men enjoyed the spirit-empowered speaker. Both had the same opportunity to be wise, and both had good intentions. But one builds his house on a solid foundation, and the other builds his house on shifting sand. And the difference between the two men is defined by their response to just one statement. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice or fails to put them into practice. How would you respond to what Jesus said? Would they trust the, these words of mine or would they come up with their own ideas? And the big question in what you're building is, it's either I will do what God says or what man says. And if it's man, then I say. Not the uh, British I say, old chap, but the I say of self-nature, uh, self-sovereignty. I will do it my way. Now, the foundation of Canada is becoming less rock-like and more sand-like. If you reflect back to 1967, Canada Day, when we celebrated our 100th anniversary, great celebrations took place in Ottawa. And among the things that were done in the program that day, there were church leaders who prayed the Lord's Prayer, read scripture and quoted, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. And we acknowledge that we are a nation under God. Move forward now, 50 years, Canada Day, when we celebrated our 150th anniversary 2017. At the celebrations in Ottawa, there were no representatives from 
any spiritual communities. There was no prayer, no reference to scripture, and the speeches on that day proclaimed that we had determined our own way and would design our own Canadian destiny. It was like the government was saying, build your own life, your own family, your own church, your own business, your own nation, your own way. And the notion that man can self-determine, provide his own foundation, is what we call relativism. And that concept, to support I will say, is backed up by a social covenant where we demand that everyone allow for this philosophy and rule, and that's called tolerance. So one of these two men determines, I will do it my way. And when people do, they have four options. There are four options if you want to do life your way. Number one, you'll say, well, the law is the basis for moral authority. Let me tell you a true story. A Chinese surgeon was called to handle a botched abortion. Um, and there was no clinician around to handle it, so she needed to do that. So the surgeon faced a dilemma. Because of the Chinese one-child policy, the, an abortion had been ordered. But in doing the procedure, uh, there was a live childbirth. And the child was beautiful, brimming with life. And as the surgeon looked at the baby, it, it was a stretch for her to think, that the law was right. So she searched for another staff member to carry out the law, but she couldn't find anyone who was able to do that. And so she was very conflicted. What do I do now? And at the end, she kind of muttered these words. Well, it must be right if it's the law. And in this example, the law is viewed as the ultimate authority of ethics, but the law is not perfect. Option two, Society is the basis of moral authority. Dr. Don Richardson, in his wonderful book, Peace Child, tells of how he and his wife went to work in Irian Jaya among the Sawi people and tribe. Now, the Sawi tribe developed a societal ethic in which treachery was the highest form of virtue and honor. And heroes of their legends were leaders who formed friendships with other persons or tribes and then betrayed them. Don tells how the Sawi hunter came across another man in the jungle and they formed a relationship. They began to meet in the jungle. They began to exchange gifts. They became friends. And one day, the Sawi warrior invited the man to come to his family treehouse for a feast. And during the feast, while the guest was expressing his appreciation and surprise at this new friendship, the hunter slowly walked behind him and then ran a spear through the unexpecting friend's heart. The family cheered and they joined in the assassination. The highest form of virtue in that society was betrayal. So if society becomes the seat of moral authority, then treachery, even murder, become good and celebrated. Well, there's a third option, if I do it my way, and that's human authorities. They can become the basis of moral authority. Uh, wasn't it sad that history reveals that the Nuremberg trials, it was said over and over again by those who were of lesser rank. Well, I was just doing what I was told by those in authority. I was just doing my job. And I wonder, 
globally, how many atrocities this year have been committed because of a corrupt leader, dictator, boss? There was a time people believed that those with authority were should have the seat of authority and must be followed. That concept is being less and less widely accepted. There is a higher law than the boss. There is a higher law than the king, and we must come under it. The fourth option is, well, the heart is the basis of moral authority. In Genesis 1, the appeal of a beautiful tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, combined with the temptation of pride and the hope of gaining more power seemed to justify disobedience for Adam and Eve. Their motives seem pretty acceptable. They hoped that by violating the moral authority of God, they would become smarter, they would gain an advantage. But the truth was, what seemed so fair was not right. And when they violated the moral authority of God, there were consequences. I've heard it again and again, so have you. Well, it just felt right. Well, I just felt like I wanted to do that. It felt so good. And our hearts can be so easily deceived in areas of sexuality or greed. And if the heart is the basis of moral authority, then each man or woman can basically do whatever is right in their own eyes. And the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. So there's four sources of authority in relativism. There's the law, society, people in authority are experts in the heart. And relativism says man will decide what's right and what is wrong. But it stands virtually opposed to evidence all around us. Most everything shouts out that we live in an absolute world. If you want to get a glass of water, you don't hold that glass above the faucet the water flows down, not up. You can't hold the glass above the faucet and hope the water will flow up. Gravity is absolute. And one of the men chose to make the word of God his foundation. And that's the second option. So there's relativism. I'll do it my way. I'll build on the sand. Or I'll do it God's way. And I'll build on the rock. Matthew 7. Jesus says, those who hear my words and do what I say, the moral authority should come from the transcendent God. He is the perfect lawgiver, and he writes the laws even in our hearts, and his, way are found, his ways are very foundational, even for healthy society. In John 5, 34, 40, we read, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. Whatever deviates from the guidance of Jesus is like building a house on the sand. With God, there is true authority. With God, there is trustworthy, absolute authority. And everything else is relative. So we've seen both people had a dream to build a house. We see that both people had a plan, how they would build their house. Now the big question is, would the house they build last? Would it withstand the storm? I'd like you to think with me for a few moments of Psalm 1, which parallels Matthew chapter 7. Psalm 1 also tells the story of two men 
who were just like the guys in the parable. Psalm 1 was written as a historical comparison of these two lives. It's written about King Saul and King David. Psalm 1 was written so that Israel would understand that being a person of integrity mattered. And when it was written by David, it inspired a nation to choose God's way and to choose integrity. It's interesting that the editor's note in the uh, English Standard Version says, the way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. The psalm begins with blessed, another translation. That word could be happy is the man versus unhappy is the man. So in order to establish his throne, King Saul does three things. He walks in the counsel of the ungodly. He stood in the way of sinners and he sat and listened at the seat of the scorners. So David in verse one is describing King Saul. Now, by contrast, David did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but he walked in the counsel of the godly, and we would now say the Christ-like, then it would have been the Jehovah-like. Nor he didn't stand in the way of sinners. David would stand in the way that people of integrity would teach him. And he would not sit with the scoffers, but he would sit with those who had a testimony of faith. So isn't it interesting? The first verse in the first Psalm accentuates the importance of having people in your life who help you with character and help you to form that character. Psalm 1 actually sounds like an invitation to a small group or to have mentors who inspire you to live for God. And it's easy to think about the relationships that David had that helped him to be a person of integrity. Jonathan, Samuel, David's mighty men, Nathan the prophet. Then the psalmist moves to the importance of a personal relationship with God in faith. So having people who help me be a person of integrity, verse one, verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Now, we all need to have a time of prayer, a time in the Word, a time of worship, a time of reflection, a time of studying, a time of journaling. If we're going to be people who build a strong character, build on a strong foundation, we need to have two things. We need to have people who help us, and we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God who helps us. On the screen, you're going to see uh, an illustration that I cooked up just the other day as I was driving through our community, and I noticed they were building a basement uh, for a house that was about to be built. And I looked, and there were these white styrofoam blocks held together by steel pins, and a cement truck and a pumping unit was putting cement between the styrofoam and um, the styrofoam had outlined the basement. I looked at that house construction and I thought, there's kind of an analogy here. As you notice on the screen, the styrofoam blocks are the word, the word of God and good character that comes by that word and integrity. And those styrofoam blocks will fit your life. They will fit the design that God has for you and the things you want. It will be shaped to help you live. And as the styrofoam blocks are assembled together, you'll notice there are little steel straps, I think they're steel, that go between the white panels. Those straps hold 
the styrofoam in place. And I think that represents the community of faith that helps us to apply the word of God. And then the arrow that you see pouring into the cement form is your obedience and the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to build a strong foundation, we need the word of God to outline what life is like. We need people who will integrate with us and hold us the, the plan for integrity in life together. And we, of course, need obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit to work with us. Now, that little drawing made sense to me. I hope it's somehow helpful to you. But let me say this. As we move towards the fall here at Crossview, we're going to have small groups that are going to help you build your house, your life, your marriage, your faith, your business, and even help us to make a difference in our city and nation. And I would encourage you to plan to be the kind of person who doesn't miss the opportunity, but you seize the opportunity to join groups. One of the groups will study this book. As we learn how to be people of integrity, we'll study this. But there's going to be many significant studies that you can be a part of. Don't miss out Psalm 1, Psalm, verse 1 and 2. Be a person who has people who help them become a person of integrity. And make sure you have time with God personally so that you become a person of integrity. Then look at verse 3 of the psalm. The psalmist says, he talks about meditating on the word of God. He said the person who does that, whether it's alone or with others, or by listening to Pastor Chris's sermons, he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. I'm glad he said tree and not a dandelion that thrives one week and then vanishes the next, but a long lasting tree. When we came here, we planted some apple trees in our backyard. And this year, in spite of the drought, it seems like they are producing quite a harvest of apples. First time. What I know about those apple trees is this. They yield fruit in time. John 15 says, You cannot bear fruit of yourselves except you abide in Christ. The fruit, just like integrity, takes time to develop. It reproduces, though, again and again. So the apple tree, I expect, will produce apples next year. And the year after that. And the year after that. And I have a hunch that as the apple tree matures, it will have more and more fruit if properly uh, gardened, maintained. So the psalmist goes on to say, and the tree's leaf does not weather, and whatever he does prospers. It kind of sounds like a man in the parable who builds his house on the rock. Abraham Lincoln said, character is like a tree, and reputation is like a shadow. King Saul said, the wicked, uh, in this psalm, we see King Saul, and these words reflect, reflect him. He didn't say this, but this is about him. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff, not a tree, but like chaff, which the wind drives away, like a house built on the sand. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I'm so glad that's the case. God knows your way. He knows what you're going through. He knows how to help you. He knows how to help you build no matter what's going 
in your life, he can be there to establish and to help. So open your heart to him, please. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And he established David's throne, didn't he? He caused David to thrive. Now, we know about David that he started his life so well. And he's a wonderful picture of integrity for the early years of his life. And then he begins to drift. It's like he discontinued letting his community help him and discontinued being in the Word. And then there's that sad moral failure. But in Psalm 51, he repents. And here's the good news. God restored him and rebuilt his integrity. And he would end his life with good character. He would be persuasive. His life would be attractive. He would again become trustworthy. And good character diffuses conflict and disarms critics. Good character is like a fruitful tree or like a house built on the, on the rock. Now, if you think of Saul and you think of his life, you realize that because of the corruption he allowed to come into his heart, in terms of influence, he stopped using his influence for the good of the nation. He was even prepared to kill his own son to, prepare, to protect his self-image. But flip that around and think of David. David used his influence to make the nation better. And when his son, Absalom, even in rebellion, acted out against his father, David still longed for his son to be restored and to be helped. And he used his influence for what is good. In terms of trust, why? Saul broke trust by promising his daughter to David and then later giving her to another man. David, on the other hand, gave his word to Jonathan. But then Jonathan died. But David still followed through on what he had said to Jonathan, and he brought Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, to his table and there took care of him to honor a pledge he had made to his dead friend. In terms of honor, while Saul, he could not rejoice when others were honored. But David, he would honor others. And when he saw them succeed, he rejoiced. Hence, we have the mighty men of David. So as you think about integrity and the difference that it made in a kingdom, one was built on the sand, the other on the rock. David on the rock, Saul on the sand. Coming back to the parable, Jesus said both men wanted to build a house. I want to build a house. I'm sure you do too. And so Jesus says both men wanted to build, but they had to make a selection. It's important we make a selection to build to last, to build on ground that is firm. It's rock-like. It's solid. Because the reality is there will come rains and storms and winds. And Jesus said the one man was a fool and the other was wise. So evidently, you can be a wise person or a fool and have a dream, attend a church, have a plan to build a house. But according to Jesus and his parable, the thing that makes you wise is not your IQ, your EQ, your grade point, or your financial statement, or your business acumen. The thing that makes you wise is hearing the words of Jesus 
and doing them. The wise man in the parable decided to take the spiritual truth he had heard and apply it in his everyday living. The wise man is not the one who knows the most, but the man who acts on what he knows. The fool, on the other hand, is the person who fails to apply. The fool can be a person who knows just as much as anyone else, but he doesn't do anything with what he knows. A fool can be a nice person. A fool can have good intentions. The fool is not defined by knowledge or lack of it, but by application and the lack of application. So Jesus concludes his message and says, whoever hears these words of mine and does them. So let me risk saying, whoever hears this message and does it will be like a wise man who builds their house on the rock. Let's none of us be foolish. You and I have a chance to build our life, to build our church, to build our family, to build our business, to build this nation which we're a part of. And let's determine that we will partner together with God and with others in building a house that will last. I want to pray for you today. And I'm going to pray from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 on, where Peter invites people to do exactly what I've said, to apply the Word of God to their lives. So, Heavenly Father, as people have considered the message today and have thought about what do I know that I need to do, I pray that they will make every effort to add to their faith the goodness they know, the knowledge they know. Teach them to have self-control. Help them, help them to persevere. May perseverance lead them to godliness and godliness to brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness to love. Lord, my prayer is that those who listen today will possess the qualities of character and integrity that will increase their effectiveness and cause them to be productive in their lives. I ask today that you would help each one who listens to build their life, to contribute to the building of their family, to contribute to the building of the church, and contribute to the building of the nation. May we not be foolish. Help me, help all of us to be wise. In the name of Jesus, amen.